Amen. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. We are surrounded on all sides by the consequences of our sin and the sins of the world. We are surrounded by the enemy who wants to see us fall, the enemy who wants to see your church divided. But you are a shield around us. Because of your sustaining love, we can endure and resist temptation and trials. Because of your promises, we can have courage. Because of your faithfulness, we can rest confident in your salvation. Your salvation given to us while we were dead in sin, enslaved to this world and an enemy of you. But in Christ, your love has been poured into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And now having been reconciled to you, we set aside all idols, all false hopes, and we surrender our lives to your reign. Father, we pray for our neighbors here in Oregon and across the West who are suffering from the fires. Bring the comfort that only you can bring to those experiencing loss of loved ones or homes. Use these tragedies that the enemy certainly means for evil to bring about your glory. Where perishable things are taken away, bring imperishable things. Bring peace that outweighs all fear. We pray that you would keep safe all of those who are fighting the fires and working to care for those affected. Give them strength and energy. Bring help from the weather. And for all of us affected by the smoke, we pray that you would bring relief, especially for those who are at particular risk from the air quality. As disciples, Lord, we commit ourselves to continued learning about you, your kingdom, and your ways. Give us wisdom as we examine how we use our time. Help us to set aside worthless things that seek to deceive us or bring confusion and strife into our minds. Instead, we commit to regular study of your word. We commit to speaking to one another of your good ways. We commit to speaking to one another truthfully about sin, knowing fully the consequences of wickedness. We've learned that your glory has a weight to it. Let that weight bring gravity to our lives keeping us from being swept away by lies and rumors. Like the tree by the stream, we long to be rooted in life-sustaining truth. We open our hearts now to your Holy Spirit. Help us to learn from your word and faithfully apply what we learn in the community of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Why don't you have a seat? Thank you, Ryan. And you can grab your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 2. That'll be the first place we turn to. Acts chapter 2. I'm glad to see all of your faces. It's been a touch-and-go situation day by day, as I'm sure it has been for each of you. I'm glad to see you safe and sound. Please continue to pray for um, the folks affected by the fire. Um, many of your family and friends may even be affected by it, but uh, as well as the folks who are on the, the front line of the fire. This last week, especially for anyone who's been directly affected, uh, but really just for our whole community, has been pretty traumatic. And so I've been so blessed to watch many of you within this body uh, love folks um, who are affected by the fires. And um, I just want to say, well done. That's, um, that's what we do. Well, it's been quite a week, has it not? Pretty crazy. In the midst of this latest horrible offering of the wonderful year of 2020, 
I have heard uh, over and over again, as I'm sure you have, and even thought of it myself in my own mind, the word apocalyptic as we look out on the horizon and see the red clouds looming. That word apocalyptic comes to mind, doesn't it? Well, if you remember from a very recent teaching, this English word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation. That's the name of the last book of the Bible is apocalypsis, is revelation. In the Bible, it refers to the revelation of Jesus as king. And so in this apocalyptic time, let's try and think about the possibilities of what's going on with this mayhem around us. Okay, just indulge me for a second here. It could be, all right, it could be that this is indeed the end of the age and Jesus is about to come back. It could, right? Can we all agree on that? It could, definitely, all right? Jesus could be about to return. And if that's the truth, then what should we do? Well, number one, we should be pretty happy, right? (laughs) Uh, But then we should probably focus on being his obedient kingdom citizens in holiness. So he finds us doing so when he comes, right? But maybe it also could be that this isn't the end, but maybe God has removed his hand of protection over our nation and world, and this is just simply judgment. He's let let us have what we've wanted, which is his hand to be removed, and this is the rebellion of mankind. It's judgment on that. It could be that. And if that is the truth, then what should we focus on? Well, being his obedient kingdom citizens in holiness. Or it could be, guys, that it's neither of those things. It could be that it is just a result of poor stewardship of God's creation, and it's a natural outcome of sin, even as Ryan was praying there. And if that's the truth, then what should we focus on? (laughs) Being, yeah, thank you, being God's uh, obedient kingdom citizens in holiness. Amen? But along with that, for many of us, the stress and anxiety of the pandemic, of the supposed coming vaccinations, the riots in Portland and elsewhere, the upcoming elections, and much more, all of this has created an environment in which our brokenness starts to simmer just below the surface. Does anybody else feel that way sometimes? We can see our flesh creeping up there. And then when the stress or anxiety gets too high, what happens is we respond in kind of traumatic eruption and take it out on those that we love, those that are near us, our, our spouses, our roommates, our friends, maybe even people within the body, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even though I toyed with the idea of, do I need to do a different teaching because of all the mayhem going on around us, right? We jumped off of Mark onto uh, this series, and then I thought, oh man, do we need to do something else? I joked this morning that maybe there are pastors around town that are uh, teaching on the section in 1 Kings where the temple is filled with the glory of God of smoke. (laughs) But uh, I wanted to stay here because I think that we need what we're about to talk about, even in the midst of fires raging, even in the midst of pandemic, especially in the midst of these things, because they cause the stress and anxiety that causes us to forget who we are in Christ and go into that self-protective fleshly mode sometimes. And so we need to have our focus adjusted to keep our eyes on Jesus and his will and his plan, especially in tribulation. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in this mini-series based on an application of the truth of Mark 13. And we've been calling that series, The Kingdom Citizens Amidst Chaos. And as we came out of Mark 13, we wanted to provide practical application. We talked a ton in there about what was happening and how it showed Jesus being risen up and the sacrificial system, the old covenant sacrificial system being tamped down. Uh, And that chapter was really about the future tribulation for the uh, disciples of the first century there. 
And then also the last things. And if we're not careful, we get sucked up into these conspiracy theories. I don't know why, but we as Christians are really prone to this sometimes. We get sucked up into these conspiracy theories and fear and hopelessness and pointing of fingers and who's lighting the fires, right? Just stay away from that stuff, guys. It's worthless. It doesn't bring any fruit. But why Jesus gave his disciples a heads up that life would be tough and that Hope and obedience and endurance needed to be the characteristics of the kingdom, of the people of God, was that they needed this at the core of their identity, especially as they moved through chaos and disorder and tribulation. We need those things. And this is the idea of this miniseries. We realize that we need one another to help us, to give us courage, and to take courage given by the word to keep going forward in times like these and being disciples. We need to encourage one another in our confident expectation in Christ and his kingdom and live that out in how we obey in the here and now, operating in what we can control, our own obedience to his commands. And then last week, just as a summary, we looked at the fact that the core of that obedience, it comes in in this idea of uh, communication. The core of what makes the gospel we proclaim compelling to the non-believing world is how we use that communication in the midst of covenant faithfulness and steadfast love to show our relationships with one another as they image Christ. And that should then pour out into our other relationships and give a compelling reason to the watching world as to why they would want to step into the kingdom along with us in which relationship with Christ is found. And that covenant idea in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant has at its foundation this idea of communication, speaking the truth in love. We need to communicate strengths of one another I want to ask you guys, after last week, how many of you followed through on the application of talking to someone in the church and telling them their strengths in the Lord? Did anybody do that? Is there anybody in here who did that? A couple people? Good. Awesome. Well done. But then we also started to look at the fact that often in our godly relationships at church, we're going to find that not only do we need to communicate and build up with those strengths, but we also need to speak the truth that will be hard to hear. So how do we live out the gospel and enter into the necessary conflict that has the purpose of sanctification. And so today, what we're going to be talking about, the title of this sermon today is Conflict That Sanctifies. Conflict That Sanctifies. Now, immediately, I know many of us that grew up in homes that equated Christianity with a lack of conflict and being happy all the time might become very confused. (laughs) Hans, you've lost your mind. No, this is really important stuff, as you'll see. This idea of conflict being a necessary part of Christianity is confusing for many. So let's actually start there, answering the question, why is conflict a necessary reality in the church? Why is conflict a necessary reality in the church? Now, to be clear, before I I jump into it, this isn't saying that Christians should look for conflict or that Christians should desire conflict. If you're a person who's like, man, I love conflict, right? That's problematic. It is to say that we should desire holy obedience in ourselves and our community to the point that hard conversations that help us move towards holiness is seen not as a curse, but as a blessing. To have conflict that is not sanctifying is unfruitful. And we see that all the time in our homes, our families, in our church, right? Conflict that's not sanctifying is worthless. It's actually tearing down. But conflict that is sanctifying can actually build up. So why is conflict a necessary reality in the church? Well, the simple answer to that is from the gospel. Just as the gospel unites, it also divides. 
Write that down. Just as the gospel unites, it also divides. And so in that division, conflict will come. If we are a church preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to both offend those continuing in sin and draw those pursuing holiness all at the same time. So let me show you what I mean here. Let's say we preach this version of the gospel, okay? I'm about to give you one version that I've heard preached before. God loves you no matter what, no matter what you've ever done, nor what you will ever do, because Jesus bought your forgiveness at the cross. He has a great purpose and plan made specifically for you, and if you simply accept his free gift of loving grace, you will be at peace, in comfort, and feel his love. He is not requiring anything of you in return. Just come as you are, because that is grace. Now, if we preach that, someone might say it's a little bit weird. Uh, They might say, well, I don't believe in God anyway, right? But it would be very hard to use that gospel to offend anyone. There's nothing offensive in it at all. If you're offended by that, you are literally the most sensitive person on the planet. This gospel makes Jesus actually sound crazy when he says in both Matthew and Luke, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, why on earth would anyone be offended by the good news I just gave about Jesus if that is the true gospel? Well, I would submit to you that the reason it's not offensive is because it's a false gospel. There are pieces of that gospel that I just said that sound biblical and even close to the truth, but overall... It's a false gospel because it's missing some very important pieces. What is the true gospel, gospel that both draws and offends at the same time? Well, it's still based in love and forgiveness. That's never going away. But it starts somewhere else. It starts with the bad news. You see, the creator God is good, holy, loving, and just. That's awesome. That's not the bad news yet. But he created us in his image to be his holy priests within his creation, to steward his creation, and give glory to his name. But rather than responding with humility and submission and thankfulness and gratitude, what we did is we responded uh, with pride and arrogance and rebellion, putting ourselves as the authority. And that bent of sinful rebellion and thirst for chaos that was there in the garden and that thirst for disobedience is at the core of our humanity. It's in our flesh until the day we die with a spirit waging against it. And if God had never intervened, that spirit of disobedience would have been rightly destined for an eternity of contempt from a just and righteous God. To be connected to him is to know life. Without him, to be divided from him is to know eternal death. So look with me at what awaits anyone who refuses his call to be his kingdom citizens and to be in relationship with him. This is Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, this is speaking of resurrection, some to everlasting life, those are his, his people, they're in his kingdom, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And just to be clear, this word contempt in the Greek, it means hatred. If you don't know Jesus and you're an enemy of him, then resurrection will lead to eternal hatred from him. That's what that says. Here's another one from Matthew 25, 46. It says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And just in case you might tend to think this means destruction, so you can live it up now, and then at judgment, you will cease from existing. Let's talk about what hell will look like in eternity. This is Revelation 20, 10. 
The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't know about you guys, but I have a new appreciation for fire and smoke. I don't want any part of it, especially for eternity. If we persist in our rebellion and pride without repentance, then we are in danger of an eternal fate that is punishment, hatred, suffering, and torment. Now, dear friends, that is not because God is sadistic. It is because he is a just judge. Rebellion against the eternally loving, eternally existing creator receives an eternal existence in division from him. Our sinful and rebellious hearts cry out against this. I even find my heart as a Christian, when I read this, I go, Ugh, right? We want to cry out, who does he think he is? That's unfair. That's offensive. I don't deserve that. But see, this is the reason we need to hear the good news. is because he's not sadistic. He actually gave himself so that we don't have to go that route. What Jesus brought is good news. You see, God in his steadfast and faithful love for his creation chose a covenant people, Israel, the tribe of Abraham from whom he raised up his Messiah, his son, Jesus the Christ, to save all mankind from that destruction. And rather than me tell you what the, the gospel is, let's turn to Acts 2, where you're at there, and look at verse 22, and we're going to have the apostle Peter tell us what it is. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over some of the Old Testament references here, but we're just going to read through it. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip forward to verse 29 there. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we, of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Then verse 36, that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see, the good news is spelled out very specifically here, that Jesus was killed as a sinless sacrifice in our place. He was our perfect scapegoat, so to speak, that took on our sins and took the wrath of the triune God upon himself, not just the Father, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of this, we are forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. And then he was raised in victory because God is greater than our sin or death. He was victorious over our rebellion so that he could then break its power in our lives. He was enthroned and then exalted as both Savior and Lord and King. 
He was given all authority over the lives of those that he purchased with his own blood. He poured out his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, into the hearts of the the people that he died for to reflect him to a world that needs to know his holiness and love. And he did all of this not because we deserve it or earned it, but because of his grace. And as a response to this, he calls us to two things. Repentance, which is the turn to worship him from what we used to worship and let our behavior follow, and to be baptized. To be baptized is an outward sign of inclusion into the new covenant community of God as you become a member of his body, belonging to one another in your local expression of that body. Because of the horrific eternal future that awaited all mankind, this is the good news. Do you see now what was missing in that first section that I talked about, the the supposed gospel? But see, this gospel that I just spoke to you is still offensive because Jesus requires allegiance and obedience in repentance from those who want to respond to his free gift of grace. Friends, it is offensive because Jesus is Lord and King and calls you to give your life to him. The true gospel preached will unify those who desire to pursue holiness and true peace between God and man and one another. But it will slowly, over time, divide those who want to be their own authority. It might happen quickly. It might happen over time. But just as the gospel unites, it also divides. When sin becomes present in a community that's pursuing holiness, it should cause division. The message of the gospel is that sin divides us from God and from one another just as it did in the garden. So when we choose to sin as individuals, we're choosing to separate from those who are closer to God in pursuing holiness. It causes division. Now, if we repent the moment internal or external conviction comes, that sin can be dealt with. It can be forgiven and reconciliation and unity in Christ can flourish if it's dealt with quickly. But if we don't, If we persist in sin, division will come between those pursuing the gospel and those that are not. And unfortunately, this will outwardly look like conflict. The unfortunate reality is that rather than engaging in this hard and heartbreaking work, many within the church and in many churches have instead embraced a false gospel that excuses and even justifies unrepentant sin in their midst. Or they simply avoid it for fear of man and desire to be liked. But sin left alone in the community of God's new covenant people grows roots of bitterness quickly, and it spreads. This is why Paul used the picture of yeast in a lump of dough when he talked about it. He was writing to the church in Corinth who was dealing with uh, some sin in their midst, and they were operating in a place where they thought, oh, we're being so loving, you know, we're continuing to walk with this person. Uh, and, and Paul writes to them and says, you guys are boasting in this supposed love, but it's just enablement. It's not actually love. Look at what he says, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You see, a large part of why God calls Christians into a community when they become his own is that we need one another to hold us accountable and to help us peel back the blinders when we have justified our own sinful actions and attitudes. I don't know about you guys, but I have multiple trophies at home for justification of my own sin. Is there anybody else in here that's like that? I am so good 
I'm like a professional at justifying my own sin. And so very rarely in my life have I just had this Jesus moment where the Spirit overcomes me and I'm like, oh, I need to repent. It's happened, but I can probably name on one or two hands the number of times it's happened. But so often, wonderfully so, graciously so, brothers or sisters come to me lovingly and say, hey, Hans, here's something that's going on. You should probably look at it. It's, oh, I was blind to that. It's in this work of encouraging one another in our strengths and consistently calling one another to holiness and righteousness and justice that we image God to the world as his body. In the letter to the Hebrews, the author echoes this idea, and I've taken you there recently as well, but it's so important. Go to Hebrews 3.12 again with me. I know we've been there a few times recently, but Hebrews 3.12. And we're going to read through verse 2 of chapter 4. And notice throughout this the discussion of pursuing the Lord and the need to exhort one another in that And then those that don't, those that continue to choose disobedience, the division that happens, okay? See that in this text. Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Notice how he connects belief and obedience there. If you believe, you obey. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Notice the responsibility that he's taking on, uh, he or she, the author of the, of the, the letter, is taking on for them. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See the division that occurred there at the end? Just as the gospel unites, it also divides. I want to recommend to you uh, an article. I kind of uh, stole this title a little bit, Just as the Gospel Unites, It Also Divides, from a wonderful article you can go find on ninemarks.org, the number ninemarks.org, by William Farley that was released a couple days ago. And it's entitled, Want Your Church to Enjoy Unity? Let the gospel do its dividing work. And I would highly encourage you to go read that. It'll, it'll kind of go along with what I've just been talking about. But dear church, if we are a covenant community that loves one another, when we see division forming, we see bitterness growing, or we see sin continuing with a lack of repentance, we will have a sense of urgency to speak the truth in love to rectify it. We won't enable it. And again, this will look like conflict, but it's actually sanctifying if handled obediently. So with all of this, we can therefore see that this is true. Out of love, disciples of Jesus will have sanctifying conflict. Out of love, disciples of Jesus will have sanctifying conflict. Now again, we shouldn't be desiring conflict or looking for conflict, but guys, when sin is present, it's a sanctifying thing to work through the conflict. 
This takes assertive communication where both parties can know and be known. And this is the core of how Christ commands us to deal with conflict and sin in our community. And all of us know when this is happening and we need to go to the other person, right? This is what's commanded of us. But sometimes we might be right, sometimes we might be wrong. And so the Lord gives us an understanding and a command, a set of instructions of how to deal with this. And you guys probably know where I'm going, but let's go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. As you're turning there, I'll tell you a quick little funny story. Somebody came to one of the other elders. They were telling me this story recently. Oh, I guess it was a little while ago, but uh, somebody came to them and, and said, you know, why do you guys talk about Matthew 18 so much? Oh, well, it's really important because it deals with conflict in the church. Well, when are you going to stop dealing with it? When are you going to stop t- talking about it so much? And the elder lovingly looked at them and said, when we start doing it. <laughs> and guys, that's the truth. When we actually stop just looking at our Bible, see, I-, I know how this goes. I was a Christian that for many years, I read a ton of the Bible. I could read it. I could tell you book, chapter, and verse. But then one day it hit me, I'm not actually doing any of it. And see, an obedient Christian is one who does it. And so let's look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and recognize that this is the Lord telling us to do something, not recommending it, but giving us command. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among you. And realize, again, the context of this is not a prayer circle. It's not even fellowship on a Sunday. God is saying, where two or three of you are gathered together, I'm there to perform the discipline that you enact. (laughs) Okay, this is church discipline. Now, this is really helpful for conflict in our families, in our marriages even, in our community as a local expression of the body of Christ. It's innate to this passage that you are members with the same assembly or ecclesia or church, as it says here, that you have a responsibility for the people that you're dealing with and you have a relationship with them. When sin is present in the body, whether it be between me and my wife, whether it be between me and my sons or my daughter, or me and one of you, I need to go to you. And there are three successive steps. First, go to them personally because they are your brother in Christ and you are responsible for them. Notice that there's no caveats here. It doesn't say go to them if you feel like it, go to them if it's going to be comfortable, go to them if you've spent enough time collecting your thoughts. It just says go to them right? Don't let it linger. And so we go to them. If I notice that bitterness is building in our relationship and our relationship is starting to dissolve, now I'm in sin because whether by fear of man or dismissal of bitterness is no big deal, I'm not following God's command to go and keep peace between us. Guys, uh, I've spent a long time in ministry and I, this, is, this is the core of what happens in a lot of really bad relationships is a person will be upset and then be upset and then be upset and, well, I'm going to just let it go. I'm going to let it go. And then eventually builds up so much upsetness, so much bitterness that eventually it's, I can't take this relationship anymore. And that's a cancer in the midst of God's body. It actually mars the gospel of Christ. This is a passivity that will eventually result in passive aggressive eruption when I build a case with all that has made me bitter at that person. 
We are instead, as believers, to do what's called keeping short accounts, okay? Just like you want to balance your checkbook regularly, you want to keep short accounts with one another so that no root of bitterness might build. If you notice bitterness at all, you've got to search out why it's there and then go talk to the person about it. Now, what happens when those two people come together and you've got two diametrically opposed views? Well, what happens oftentimes is that the people try and then they go their way and, and they go talk to other people. If you're one of those people uh, that's being talked to by somebody who's in conflict with someone else, you need to ask them, number one, did you go and talk to them? And if, you, if they say, yeah, I did, and it didn't work out, then you say, great, I'll go with you and we'll go talk to them again. Right? We're going to press this to walk through this. Okay? We don't just let it sit in the midst of the body because we know what happens with that. But let's say we have two people who have totally diametrically opposed understandings of what occurred. Well, that's where we all need, all of us, both people included, and all of us need to be open to the inclusion of another party that was either a witness to the issue or could help us mediate to a common truth. And guys, we should approach this step long before bitterness ever takes hold of us. If we can't figure it out, we should approach this early. The reason for this is that we are all often blinded, myself included, by our sin and we'll justify it in our own minds as okay. And so we need one another to help us see these truths sometimes. And this step of Matthew 18 should be the giant red stop sign for us as believers. If we have interaction with one person and we're disagreeing, well, that's pretty normal. That's just humanity. But if we then have two people come, and then three people come, and then four people come, and then maybe the whole church body come to us, and these people have evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives that are coming to us, and if they come with a common truth with the same issue, we need to hear it and respond in humility, not defensiveness and justification. And we need to decide and make that up in our minds before it happens. Because guess what? When you're in the midst of the conflict, are you probably going to make it up then in your minds? Not at all. If you've started to justify, it doesn't matter if the entire army of the United States comes to you and says you're in sin, you're probably going to still justify it. When it comes to our sanctification as part of the body, often our growth in our blind spots comes when our brothers and sisters are motivated in love and with the end goal of my sanctification and God's glory to come to me and let me know about those blind spots. And this is also the place where we, as the person bringing the correction, we may be told that it's actually not sin. And guys, in our society of hypersensitivity, I mean hypersensitivity, we need this step. Because if I'm really bummed out, let's say, you know, Sarah Campbell, right? I'm really mad at her. And so I go to Sarah and I'm like, I, you sinned against me. And she's like, I don't think that's sin. No, it is sin. Well, I just don't think it is. Well, then maybe we need to bring in a third party to explain the situation to them. And I could get told, yeah, Hans, that's not sin. You're being too sensitive. Calm down. And then I need to repent because I falsely accused someone else. See, that's that step. And that step is important because if we're calling something sin that's not sin, we're actually the one doing the harm. We need this help from one another based on biblical truth to understand maybe when we need to let something go and just continue forward in reconciliation. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. If there is any sign of repentance in the midst of either of these first two steps, then the party bringing the charge against the other needs to forgive immediately and choose to remember their sin no more. 
well, Hans, what happens if they do the same sin again? Well, then you deal with that sin again and you say, now I'm noticing a pattern. Well, you're supposed to forget it. No, don't ever forget it. Walking in forgiveness is choosing to remember no more like the Lord does. It's not forgive and forget. That is not a Christian idea. Forgive and choose to remember no more as long as repentance stays put. Where do I get that from? I get that from the Lord. If I say, Lord, I am so sorry for, you know, committing that horrendous, horrific act. And he says, you're forgiven, just like it says in 1 John. But then I do it the rest of my life in continuous unrepentance. Is he going to choose to remember it no more? No, he's going to give righteous judgment. But if I stand in repentance and continue fighting against that sin for the rest of my life, he's going to forgive as I show that repentance on a regular basis. Now, unfortunately, this second step does not always work. And so in the sad case where a brother or sister has had sin brought to them, and rather than repent, they instead justify their actions and then just continue on in it, well, then it's the responsibility of the new covenant community to let them know that they're playing with fire and come to them as a last-ditch effort to call them to repentance and to put down their pride. This is where we as the church here in Matthew 18 would come to someone and let them know we are in doubt that they are still walking within covenant faithfulness to the Lord and to his people. And if we believe that someone in prideful rebellion may be messing with eternal damnation because of their sin, or we see that their activity is harming the body, then we're going to act with urgency to warn them and call them back to repentance. Guys, if hell is real, then this is actually love to go to them and call them back. Look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. And if you read the context of this, he's not actually talking about some horrific sin that we would classify in our current day. He's talking about laziness. <laughs> this is actually in the context of someone who's wanting food but not working within the community. And he says, go tell them they need to work in order to eat. And he says, if they don't obey, look at what he says here in 2 Thessalonians 3, 13 through 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Now pause there for a second. This is where everybody freaks out with church discipline. Are we supposed to shun people who don't repent? No, of course not. Well, that's what that sounds like. Well, notice the very next line. Right as he says, don't have anything to do with him, he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You see, when somebody who shows that they're in unrepentant sin uh, goes out of our body, we don't shun them. We don't tell them, you know, uh, I'm never going to talk to you again. What we do is we maintain the relationship as long as they'll have it. But when we see them, guess what we say? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Have you repented yet? And then the next time we see them, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Have you repented yet? Hey, how you doing? You get the drift here, right? We call them to repentance. What happens if they just move on and say, I'm not going to deal with it? That doesn't change your faithfulness to them because it's the same faithfulness that the Lord's asking for them. Well, Hans, doesn't time remove sins? Not if you've never repented from them. Well, Hans, what about sins that I've long forgotten? Get on your knees and say, Lord, like David did, if there's any unknown sin in me, I repent and I pray for you to reveal that to me so I can repent to anyone I've harmed. Friends, do you see why conflict that comes from dealing with sin in our midst is actually motivated by the love at the core of the gospel? This should never be done ever from a place of self-righteousness, but a pleading from a contrite heart that knows that each of us 
myself included, are within a hair's breadth of falling into sin ourselves. This is why Paul says this in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Friends, we have been given a huge responsibility, not just to keep ourselves in obedience to God, but to exhort one another to that obedience as well. We bear a responsibility for ourselves and for everyone in our body. And this, dear friends, is why hard conversations need to happen in the body of Christ, so that we collectively are a body made up of individuals who are pursuing the holiness of God and obedience to his kingdom reign. When one of us walks in unrepentant activity and has an unwillingness to grow in Christ, it mars the witness of the whole body because to not deal with sin shows us as hypocrites that justify our own rebellion while calling the world to repent. Do you remember how we began a few weeks ago with the idea of the control box? This picture here, if you're, you're hearing this for the first time, there's some paper copies on that back table back there. Uh, this is the control box where we act in what we can control and we uh, accept what we can't control and everything else, ceaseless striving and learned helplessness is from the flesh. What we are given for uh, responsibility for in the body is relationships within the body. We're not actually given responsibility for the non-believing world around us. Did you know that? Somehow, Christianity over time decided that we were responsible for the non-believing world. And yet we let sin run rampant in the church. It's what you see if you look at most Christians' Facebooks, unfortunately. They're busy telling the world how to repent, but inside the church, they justify their own sin. Take a look with me at how, where I get this from in 1 Corinthians 5. Would you go there with me? 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to be in verse 9. First Corinthians 5, verse 9, going through verse 13. This is the chapter where Paul is encouraging them to exhort one another and deal with some sin in their midst, some sexual sin. Notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of this world. In other words, you'd need to step off the planet. <laughs> but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. If they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do, to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is crazy, right? How many of us have heard, oh, judge not, right? Well, true. Jesus said, don't judge the other person's speck before you deal with a two-by-four in your own eye. So there's the part where we need to be introspective and constantly working in the midst of the, the Holy Spirit to deal with our own holiness. But then it says, don't judge the world. It's not our job. Really? Who are we to judge? One another in the church. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Yes, that's, look at what it says. We're to judge one another's actions, not to condemnation, but to conviction for repentance if need be. Paul is saying the world around us is going to rage and be chaotic. Don't be surprised that they want to pervert sexuality, that they want to destroy the family, that they want to abort the unborn, 
that they want to curse the name of God, that they want to walk in racism and injustice and sin. They are following the law of the kingdom of darkness to which they belong. It should not be surprising, dear friends, when the earth around us descends into mayhem and chaos. It's not shocking. This is exactly what God would, said would happen if he is not reigning in the lives and hearts of everyone on earth. In the midst of that, what we are responsible for is ourselves here within the covenant community of God's people to which you belong and with whom you fellowship. And if we do that well, others around us will be drawn into this community and the body at large. This is evangelism. And perhaps along the way, we can affect some other changes for justice and righteousness in the world around us, even with unconverted people. This doesn't mean we should never go out and try to bring righteousness and justice. We should always be doing that. But don't be shocked when it doesn't work. Recognize that the world is against righteousness and justice. And so we can't judge them when they fight against us in that. It's actually expected. But we need to deal with it within the body. And so out of love, disciples of Jesus will have sanctifying conflict. And hopefully that conflict will be quick, as there is voicing of concern, empathy and listening, repentance and action, and forgiveness in response. But if not, Matthew 18 helps us understand what the steps are to working through it in covenant faithfulness and sanctification. So let me pause here for a second and ask you three questions that you can write down if you want. And I'd ask all of you to think about these at the very least. The first is, are you committed to this hard work of mutual sanctification among the body? Are you committed to this hard work of mutual sanctification among the body? Now, if you're a member here at this church and you've gone through the process, the immediate answer to this should be yes, because that's why you signed up for membership. But I wonder if even the members of this church are committed to this hard work of mutual sanctification among the body. We all have to ask ourselves that, on, that, that question. Secondly, I want to ask you, what happens when you personally are given loving correction? If you're not sure, you can ask those who are close to you, and I'm sure they'll know. If it's defensiveness and justification, we need to ask ourselves how we can repent of that. What happens when you're given loving correction? And third, are you in the habit of keeping short accounts? Are you in the habit of keeping short accounts? Again, if you're not sure, ask somebody who loves you and is close to you, and they'll probably be able to tell you. Or do you let bitterness build and slowly but surely withdraw from relationships? From this, we need to ask, are there conversations that we need to have where you know that bitterness has grown towards someone? I know that's more than three questions, but there you go. Are there conversations you need to have where you know that bitterness has grown towards someone? If so, recognize this last truth this morning. Sanctifying conflict requires both speaking and listening in love and truth. Now you might say, good Hans, speaking and listening, that is communication. <laughs> but no, sanctifying conflict requires both speaking and listening in love and truth. And first, we need to start with listening. Well, wait a minute, Hans, it, it says in Matthew 18 to go and say something. Well, true, but all of us need to begin even before Matthew 18 is used with the posture of listening. The posture of a Christian should always be one of listening. Whether we're reading the word, whether we're in prayer, whether we're in silent meditation, or whether we are talking with one another. Every one of us needs to ask the question of whether or not our desire for sanctification in God's glory and our collective witness, whether that outweighs 
our need to be right. So often in conversations, we're motivated by the need to be right or the need to be heard. But what our motivation should be is sanctification, God's glory, and our mutual witness. For this to occur, we need to use the assertive communication style we discussed last week, where the goal is to know and be known. You can go back and listen to that uh, teaching from last week. The goal is not agreement, but understanding of one another. Do you realize that? You don't have to agree with someone. You can still understand them. We're going to talk more about that with reconciliation next week, but our culture prizes social media and talk radio and things like this where it's all shouting into the wind. And so what it's done is evaporated any idea of communicating to understand. We spend all day hearing sounds, but we rarely listen with wisdom so that we might understand and apply. So we need to purpose to engage in assertive communication with the initial goal of simple understanding. And this is especially true in relational conflict. But guys, it's also true in all the stuff we're dealing with right now. It's important in talking about racial reconciliation. We have brothers and sisters in this church that have differing opinions that need to listen to one another. And I'm excited about brothers and sisters who want to bring that conversation to the forefront. We need to listen to understand one another. How about the topic of masks? We need to listen to understand one another. In all these things, Understanding is key. We don't have to agree, but we need to listen to understand. And we know that we've understood when we're able to briefly summarize and empathize with what the other person was communicating to us, and then also reflect what we think they mean. And so phrases are useful like this. It seems like you feel this because of this. Or I hear that you need or want this. Or what I hear you saying is this. Do I understand you correctly? and then give them a chance to help clarify your understanding. If we're prepared with this posture of listening, God will be able to speak to us through his people and his word. So this week, I have some application for you. As you communicate with other humans, I want to challenge you to focus on listening to understand, not to respond. In fact, try and remove the response until after you completely know you've understood. See how that goes. But then, once we've got that posture of listening, we also need to speak in loving truth. So many Christians just don't speak at all, as I said earlier, when bitterness starts to grow. If you're developing bitterness, you need to speak. It's part of your responsibility within this body. But before we speak, we need to come to a place where we look at our motivation if my motivation is I need to speak because I want the other person to know how hurt I am, we're in a bad place and we shouldn't say anything. But if we come to them out of a motivation of I love that person so much that I need them to know that what they did actually broke our relationship and I want them to grow in Christ. If that's your motivation for bringing something to someone, now you're in a good spot. Well, Hans, how do I get there? Prayer a lot of prayer for that person. And then you go to them. Well, Hans, you said I need to go to them immediately when they sin. If your motivation is, I need to enforce for them how badly they hurt me, you're probably not in the right heart space to do so. Go to them when your motivation is for them, not for yourself. 
And when you're ready to speak, I want to give you a tool, and we'll finish up with this, for assertive communication that's based in what's called nonviolent communication. There's a wonderful book on it I can recommend to you if you want to talk to me afterwards. It's a way you can assure yourself that you are staying in that assertive communication category we discussed last week while also approaching the person in kindness and humility. And here's the cool part. You can remember it with a simple tool you've already got with you. Your hand. Everybody raise one of your hands, okay? If you've got five fingers, great. If, if not, use the other hand, right? But uh, if you've got five fingers, you can do this, all right? So first, give me your thumb. Everybody show me your thumb, okay? Go to the person and ask them if they have time to talk about the issue. Name the overall issue and say, I'd like to talk about this issue. Is this a good time? Good time or bad time? Good time or bad time? If they say it's a bad time, then say, great, when can I talk to you later about it? And schedule a time, okay? And also, go to them and say, I want to talk to you about this issue. We have a tendency, I think, to go and say, I want to talk to you, bum, 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 right? And what happens then? Immediately, the other person's wall goes up. Oh, no, what's this about, right? I'll tell you guys that uh, I'm just going to confess a little bit of my fear. When people make uh, appointments with me and they don't tell me what they're about, I don't sleep that night. <laughs> I just don't. So to love me, tell me what you're meeting with me about beforehand, okay? Because I want to know what's going on. So is this a good time to talk about this issue or a bad time, all right? Get it out in the open. Secondly, everybody show me your pointer finger, okay? Pointer finger. Point to the facts. Point to the facts. Not at the other person. Point to the facts. Avoid judgments and interpretation and jumping into your feelings and jumping into what you want from them. Stick with what is verifiable by other witnesses or agreeable by both parties. This is where you come to a common truth, and this is the first step to reconciliation. We'll talk about this a lot next week. There's a major reason why we can't come to any agreement on racial reconciliation is because we don't have a common truth about the history of this country. We've got people over here who are saying, oh, gee, the slaves really loved being enslaved because they had good masters, right? And I say that sarcastically because if you study the history, that's just not true. And then you have people on the other side saying, no, actually, we have a horrible history, and that is true. So how do we get to the place where we can come to a common truth? Well, we need to do that before we can start moving forward in racial reconciliation, okay? So we need to point to the facts first. And in our interpersonal communication, we need to say, what I saw, what I heard, what I witnessed is this. And then the other person can give their perception. Come to a common truth, right? It may take some compromise, but you'll get there. Once you have that in place, this builds a common experience from which you can further communicate, okay? Next is uh, your, your feelings finger. And I'm going to ask you to show me all three so far. Don't show me just your feelings finger, right? That middle finger there. You guys get why that's the feelings finger, right? I don't have to spell that out for you, right? Pastors aren't supposed to do that, okay? So that middle finger, okay? That's the feeling finger. And that's where you come and you say, you know what, this is what I saw, this is what I witnessed, and I'm coming to you because I have a need for this, all right? Not I need you to do something, but I have a need for this. That way you're not attacking. I have a need for peace. I have a need for reconciliation. I have a need to get rid of this fear I've got going on, okay? Or sorry, I, I skipped over one. Your feelings. <laughs> I went to number four. Your feelings. I feel. I feel that. And avoid words that are attacking. Okay, here are some ones that are attacking. Uh, harmed, uh, hurt, unheard, dismissed. If you say to someone, I feel unheard, what did you just do? You accused them of not hearing you. I feel dismissed. What just happened? You accused them of dismissing you. Okay, so stay away from feeling words that imply judgment or uh, feelings words like, like if you say, I feel that you did this. Stay away from that. State your feelings. I feel sad. I feel, 
I feel alone, right? That's one we can claim. And then number four, that's the one I skipped to earlier, use your ring finger, okay, to remember to speak covenantally about what you need because of that feeling, okay? Covenants and needs, all right? Number four, your needs. I have a need for, if I say I'm feeling alone, I have a need for your love, your companionship. Notice how these are all very vulnerable things to say. They're not attacking, okay? So we've got, is this a good time? This is what I saw, okay, pointing to the facts. Naming your feelings without attacking, stating your need, and that's why you're coming, that's your motivation to talk to them. And then lastly, your pinky finger. Everybody show me your pinky finger, okay? Pretend like you're British drinking tea, okay? Your pinky finger. This is where you want to make your request. This is where you want them to pinky swear with you, right? (laughs) Okay? That's how you can remember it. This is the request. Would you be willing to? Would you be willing to? Now, Hans, why uh, why not just come to them and say, repent? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, you can, but you're probably going to get defensiveness. But if you come to them and say, hey, you know, here's what's going on. Would you be really willing to repent on this? What you've done is you've offered it to them. You haven't jammed it down their throat because they have the choice to take it or not, right? And don't say, would you please, right? Because a lot of times we'll, we'll say that in almost an attacking way. But would you, would you be willing to? And in the case of a person who says, no, I, I don't want to repent, All you can control at that point, you can't force them to repent. You can't force them to change. You can then only let them know what their unwillingness to engage your request means for your relationship. And then you can take the next step commanded by your king. So if you go to your brother in Christ and you say, hey, this way that you're interacting with me, this last event that I saw, this is what I felt about it. This is, I'm coming to you because I want peace between us. What I need from you is, is, is this. Would you be willing to do that, right? And if they say, no, I'm not going to do that, you can go pack sand, then all you can do is look at them and say, you recognize that that's really going to harm our relationship, right? Yeah, I do. Okay, that breaks my heart. That's all you can do and call them to repent. You can't force them. This is what Jesus does. Hey, leave everything and come follow me, right? Give up your life. Come with me. No, I'm not going to. Okay. This is the kind of communication that Jesus used. And so I hope that in giving this tool to us, we can help uh, starting to speak the truth in love in a very meaningful way. And so I'll put this online this week and you can take it, take it uh, print it out. Uh, I got this from a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, friend up in Portland uh, who I just went to one of her workshops. Her, her name's Dr. Martindale, awesome psychologist. And uh, she used this and I, I just found it applied so much to what we're talking about. So I want to ask you as we finish up, what sanctifying conversations do you need to have in this body to love one another and restore unity and true peace? What sanctifying conversations do you need to have in this body to love one another and restore unity and true peace? I want to encourage you to begin using this model when sin creeps in or we unknowingly harm one another. Brothers and sisters, for us to be a church that flourishes and grows in holiness and is compelling to the non-believing world to, to join us. We need to unite around the gospel and strive to obey the gospel, especially when the tribulation of this world causes us to revert to self-protection in the flesh. Even in the midst of all that has gone on over the last six months, our mission as a church has never stopped being the same thing, to be disciples of Jesus Christ, being taught the gospel, being equipped with obedience to the gospel and being sent to proclaim the gospel. 
come wildfires and worldwide pandemic and rioting or even the end of the age, that is what we are to engage in and that is what we will do. So may the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. Amen.